Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11. That single verse will be our sermon text for today, Deuteronomy 5, verse 11. We will follow it up for elucidation by reading from Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. This is God's word. Let us therefore give it our reverent attention. Deuteronomy 5, verse 11, which gives us the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 33. It's the Sermon on the Mount, and the Lord Jesus is speaking. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Help us to hear. Help us to obey. For your greater glory in the world and in the heavens, and for our good here on earth. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. With respect to the Ten Commandments as they appear on the pages of the Bible, two points we ought especially to uh, highlight. The first has to do with their relationship to all the rest of God's law, all those pages and pages of statutes and judgments and ordinances that follow. With respect to God's comprehensive law for human behavior, these Ten Commandments represent only a quintessential summary. They're a summary. These Ten Commandments are the chief heads and captains of God's law over us. Every line of the Bible is true, of course, but not every line is of equal weight. We ought to consider each one of these Ten Commandments to be a compact statement of human duty that's much broader 
much deeper than might appear on the surface of the words. In fact, the rest of God's law, from Exodus on through Deuteronomy, all the rest of his law is an explanation and case law application of these ten summary commandments. So what I mean is that if you are outlining the entire law of God, as we have it in this book, your major points numbered maybe in Roman numerals, bold Roman numerals, your main points would be ten. And then all the subordinate points of the law fit somewhere into that outline beneath one of these ten heads. The laws and the statutes that concern such things as your need to have a railing around the flat roof of your house. There's a law of God and it fits somewhere in this outline. Or not sowing your field with different types of seed. Or whom and whom, uh, whom you may and whom you may not marry. Or what you may and may not wear as a male or a female. Or eat. Each one of these statutes and case laws is a fleshing out of one or the other of these ten commandments. Each of which is actually very broad, very searching in its daily applications. In fact, the real scope of God's law is just what Jesus was driving home to us in the Sermon on the Mount, wasn't it? Let's not ever imagine that the sins of murder or adultery or taking the Lord's name in vain are just a matter of the outward act. They're not. And on the other hand, don't imagine that keeping these commandments is a mere matter of keeping your hands clean. It's also a matter of what you allow your eyes and your ears to take in, what you allow your lips and your heart to put out. So these Ten Commandments are a summary of the chief points of godliness, much broader, much deeper than they might appear at first glance. The second thing to notice about the Ten Commandments is their repetition. Their repetition. These commandments appear as a distinct list, not once but twice, in the Bible. We find them first in Exodus 20, of course, as God gathered the free nation of Israel there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then when that first generation had passed away, here on the plains of Moab, east of Jordan, Moses preaches them again here in Deuteronomy 5. He preaches them to a new generation that was right on the cusp of conquering Canaan. The fact that they're given twice in Scripture implies at least their importance and also their relevance to every passing generation. Their relevance not only to the ancient nation of Israel, but to all humanity. 
It never fades away. The Apostle Paul, 15 centuries later, called this law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, holy and righteous and good. Jesus himself confirmed and established it as the church's code of ethics by making it the rule of his own behavior. Our sanctification as the church may come in fits and starts, and we suffer these various failures and reverses along the way, but the fact remains that conformity to the glorious image of our Lord Jesus Christ is the goal of our salvation. Conformity to the glorious image of our Lord Jesus Christ is the goal. He saves sinners in order to sanctify us. He buys us back in order to beautify us, to clean us up. And then once we're saved from the pollution and power of sin by his atoning blood alone, what is the pattern that he uses by which to beautify us? By what standard are we now to live? Well, of course, our ethical standard is the pattern of the man Jesus. The problem for us is, Jesus is no longer here with us for us to observe and imitate. For almost 2,000 years now, he's been in heaven. So in that observational sense, anyway, Jesus is out of reach. We can't see with our eyes the glorious man, Jesus, the glorified man, Jesus. We can't observe with our eyes or hear with our ears what he's doing from moment to moment. That being the case, what is the yardstick that we have available to us for becoming more like him? It's certainly not a moral standard that lies within me. It's not that I begin to feel beautiful or holy or well-behaved. In fact... The moment my heart begins to tell me, Jonathan, old boy, you're finally starting to look pretty good. Your life is finally back on track again. The moment that my heart begins to tell me that is precisely when I need to remind myself that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? For as long as I live in this mortal body, my opinions about myself and my behavior tend even now to tell me lies about myself. I really shouldn't be listening to myself about myself. No, the truth of the matter is that by grace, by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, he progressively conforms us to the same moral law that Jesus kept as a man. And that standard is not my own. The standard lies outside us. The Holy Spirit, who so powerfully 
rearranges our lives in conformity to Christ now lives within us from the moment of our regeneration, that new birth from above. From that moment, he now lives within us. And the changes that he works within us are changes from the inside out. So becoming more like Christ by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit isn't a matter of how I feel about myself. It's about how I'm enabled by the Spirit to love and keep the law that Jesus loved and kept. To keep that law is righteousness. To fall short of it is sin. So this law is our only infallible moral Standard, Isn't that exactly what our shorter catechism says in its answer to the question? Number 14, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's the standard. So these commandments summarize the holiness that God requires of all men. All the children of Adam, who in the beginning was made in God's image and likeness, might now be renewed, we who are his children might now be renewed to that same image by grace through faith. This law spells out for us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the second Adam. So in this sense, the commandments are as relevant as a rule of life, even to the redeemed. Emphatically let it be said, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Not by my works of the law. Nevertheless, it's a more Christ-like obedience to this law that we now aspire. So today we reach the third commandment. We shall not take the name of Jehovah your God in vain. For Jehovah will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now some people are at least vaguely troubled by the fact that eight of these ten commandments are couched in negative terms. You shall not do this. You shall not do that. Only the fourth and fifth commandments that we'll get to, only the fourth and fifth commandments are couched predominantly in positive terms. Observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother. Everything else is that thou shalt not. And that troubles some people. Why should this good and gracious God ever want to reveal himself to this world as such a killjoy? Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. 
But let me suggest to you that the negative tone of the Ten Commandments is a little bit like the negativity of the Bill of Rights in our own U.S. Constitution. The Bill of Rights doesn't tell us what we as citizens must do. It tells us, for the most part, what the federal government isn't allowed to do to us. It's a description of our negative liberties. How the federal government must simply stay out of the people's business. By saying that certain rights must not be infringed, it's a description, actually, of our tremendous freedom under the law. And it's kind of a parallel with the Ten Commandments. The negative phrasing of so many of the commandments actually highlights our tremendous freedom within those stated moral boundaries. If the commandments were stated entirely in positive terms, wouldn't we always be asking, well, how much obedience is enough obedience? How much and in what specific ways should I promote life? How much and in what ways should I promote marriage? How much and in what ways should I promote the safeguarding of personal property and of my neighbor's good name? How much is enough? If the law of God were stated all positively, thou shalt do this and this and this and this, we can easily imagine the Bible to be a whole lot longer than it actually is. But for God to list those few things, those few things that are morally off limits to us, is actually to imply great liberty that's ours in everything else. Provided, of course, that you are loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Here in the third commandment, he says, you shall not take the name of Jehovah your God in vain, for Jehovah will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now our first point, which is obviously important for understanding this commandment, our first point defines our terms. We have to determine what it means for us to take or take up or carry the name of Jehovah at all. We need to define this Hebrew verb, nasal. What exactly does it mean to take up or carry someone's name? Anyone's name. What does it mean? And what does it mean with respect to this name in particular? Then secondly, we'll need to consider the proper and improper ways in which men can take up his name. Specifically, how do we take, the Lord's, take up the Lord's name in vain? And then thirdly and finally, we'll consider several 
both of the narrower and the broader applications of this third commandment. As the summary of all the various biblical laws hallowing his great name, it's much more comprehensive in its scope than the mere prohibition of profanity that many people seem to think this is. Like the other commandments, this one covers a lot of moral territory. So as to the first point, what does it mean for God's people to take or take up or carry the Lord's name? Well, in a fairly narrow sense, we take up his name whenever we take it upon our lips, that is, whenever we speak it. Let's always speak this name with the greatest care that a loving heart can give it. All the care that it is due. Narrower still than this, we take up this name whenever we solemnly officially call upon him to affirm that what we as witnesses testify to be true is true. This is the courtroom use of the name of Jehovah, this great name as a representation of the one living and true God who bears it. This name is the cornerstone and the guarantee of all human justice. Even pagan pluralistic societies like our own for centuries have recognized that legal testimony can be considered reliable fully reliable, only when it's given as the deposition, the solemn deposition of a God-fearing witness. A witness who trembles, knowing that for the truth of this testimony that I'm about to give, I will one day give an account before the living and true God. And although his covenant name, Jehovah, isn't currently used in U.S. courtrooms to authenticate the truth of our depositions, and although our U.S. Constitution incredibly forbids the use of a religious test even for civil office holders, the fact is that both they and witnesses in routine matters of law are still required to undertake the duties of their office under oath or affirmation, typically concluding with the words, so help me, God. We'll look at this narrower aspect of the third commandment a little later as we get to the applications. But let me concentrate for a moment on the broader meaning of this commandment. If it were only a matter of protecting society against perjury, as vitally important as that safeguard is, it would seem to have a pretty small scope of operation to account for one-tenth of God's whole moral law. After all, most of us don't spend a lot of time in the courtroom, generally. We don't spend a lot of time taking solemn oaths and 
vows and taking his name in that narrower sense, as critical as affirming the truth of our words is to the maintenance of a just human society. And it is critical that our words are guaranteed to be true. We just don't spend a lot of time doing it. This past week I thought through all of the solemn promises, oaths, and vows that I've taken over the last 64 years. As I thought through my life and all of these solemn oaths, vows, and covenants that I have made, I came up with only six. At the age of 18, I solemnly affirmed the covenant of communicant membership in the church. Six years later, there were the queries that I answered when I was ordained to the gospel ministry, which was essentially an oath of office. Then thirdly, there were my wedding vows taken in the presence of God and witnesses. Fourth, there was the covenant that I took at the baptism of my infant children. Fifth, there was my oath of commissioning as an army officer, concluding with an appeal for God's help in keeping it. And finally, there was one time that I served as a witness in court. So essentially, there were only six occasions, six moments in time over the course of my 64 years. But each one of them, each one of those six moments was a watershed moment in my life. Each of them was, a, was critical in determining the direction that my life would take from that point on. Safeguarding the absolute veracity of our words with solemn oaths and vows made in God's name is essential in protecting society, and this commandment certainly covers it. But the third commandment isn't exhausted by its courtroom application. Let me put it to you this way. And I'm talking in terms of broad application of this third commandment now. What does it mean to take or take up or bear someone else's name? When I was born and my name was registered on the birth certificate... I was given my father's name, Leach, my father's name. I've carried it throughout my life. I'll carry that name to my grave. That will be the name appearing on my tombstone. The name I carry stands for something. It represents me as a member of this family and not another. In much of our Western culture, when a woman marries, she leaves her father and mother, surrenders her maiden name, and takes the name of her husband. Mary Lou still gets junk mail occasionally sent to Mary Lou Estrada. But she's not Mary Lou Estrada anymore. According to the law, she's Mary Lou Leach now. When we were married, she took up 
my name. Well, there at Mount Sinai, a covenant was solemnly entered into. It was a betrothal that advanced in a binding way the relationship between Jehovah and Israel, his bride. Israel became, on that occasion, as never before, his special treasure. To use the words of Exodus 19, verse 5, Mount Sinai was a betrothal. That's why he says, you'll have no other gods before me. There will be no interlopers. I am your husband. That's why he says, you'll not make for yourselves an image of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. Because those images aren't me. And now in this third commandment, he seals the exclusivity of the betrothal by placing his name upon his bride. Let my name, which you now carry, be your daily encouragement. Let it be your daily comfort. Let it be your protection, because he who touches you from this day forward touches the apple of my eye. Oh, take this name not in vain, says your husband. Let it not be in vain that I call you my own. Live not far from me, but here with me. Under my law, under my loving protection, come carry my name. This is what it means in the broadest sense, to take up and carry the name of Jehovah. It's covenantal. It means you are his. He is yours. But then secondly, and quickly, we have to see that there's a right and a wrong way to live as his bride under this new name that he's given us. There is such a thing, unfortunately, as taking up his name in vain, to no good purpose. The proverb says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is as rottenness in his bones. The wife who takes her husband's name in vain is a cancer that ruins him. Some of you are sadly aware that there are wives, just as there are children, who seem bent on disgracing the family name. When after 23 years of marriage, my first wife divorced me 20 years ago, it was the death of a thousand cuts. But one of the knives that cut deepest into my soul was that she elected after the divorce, to keep my name. As far as I was concerned at that point, not that it mattered to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, but as far as I was concerned, my name no longer belonged to her. She wasn't entitled to it. She'd taken my name, as it turned out, in vain. 
And my point in saying this to you is just this. Within the third commandment is an ethical imperative to be, in actual practice, the redeemed men and women that we say we've become. No more nominal Christians. Mere nominal Christians or nominal churches are a rottenness in Christ's bones. They're a stench in his nostrils. They grieve the Holy Spirit. Christ and his bride, the church, aren't looking for nominal Christians. What the church and the world needs are actual Christians, spirit-filled Christians, practicing, loving, obedient, warm, radiant Christians. Become this kind of people, this kind of bride to Christ, because if you don't, If you bear the name of your husband in a mere pro forma kind of way, haven't you taken his name in vain? Well, let's come finally to the applications of the commandment, both narrowly and more broadly understood. Narrowly, in the sense of taking the Lord's name in our mouths, we take it in vain First of all, when we swear falsely, this is the sin of perjury. And it's no trivial matter for any civilization worthy of the name. As our increasingly atheistic society dissolves and descends into lawlessness, Let's not be surprised soon to see in courts of law proportionately less weight given to solemn testimony and proportionately more, therefore, given to the arbitrary whims and prejudices of the presiding judge. It's happening here in the U.S. before our very eyes. In January 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court gave the judicial green light to the godless extermination of a whole class of American people who had committed no crime. And it took over 49 years and over 50 million human lives before that lawless and unconstitutional decision in June 2022 was finally reversed. For over a decade now, God's holy ordinance of marriage has been redefined as something it never in human history was before. And don't expect the erosion of divine and human institutions to end with same-sex marriage. The godless continue to press for every aberration they can legally secure. Over the last century, in our country, the confiscation and redistribution of wealth through taxation has become so common that few anymore give it any serious thought or see it as wicked. So the sixth and the seventh and the eighth commandments are ground to powder in the mortar of human rebellion. As we interpret the accelerating religious trends of the 21st century, Why should we be surprised to see a day 
when perjury not only isn't condemned, but it's actually celebrated as a human right. The right to lie. We shouldn't be surprised, but neither must we have any part in it. Any more than we have a part in these other ongoing violations of God's law. We must be truth-tellers. Our yes must be yes. Our no must be no. Second, we take the Lord's name in vain when we're faithless to the oaths, commissions, vows, and other solemn promises we make. This is the sin of perfidy. Perjury and perfidy. I'm told that roughly 80% of divorces in this country are filed for by the wife. And so let me direct this admonition especially to my dear sisters in the Lord. Sisters, when you promise before God and witnesses to take this man who holds your hand in his to be your lawfully wedded husband, for as long as you both shall live, you must know and fully appreciate from the beginning, from your wedding day, that that's apt to be a very, very long time. Don't be rash to take a vow. But once you've vowed a biblical vow, be true to your commitments. Ask and expect heaven's help in the keeping of those commitments. It pleases him, it pleases the Almighty to grant you that help and to bless the faithful in the discharge of our appointed duties. Third, we take the Lord's name in vain when we defame it through blasphemy, heresy, ill report, and simple carelessness with any of the names and attributes of God. This is the sin of profanation of his name. The God of the Bible that we know, he is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Truth. This being so, let him be found true, though every man be found a liar. Whatever men may say or suggest about him, whatever men say or suggest about him, the solemn truth is that our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is altogether true, altogether lovely. The broader applications of this commandment resolve themselves essentially into the matter of how we answer this series of questions. They place our thinking on a trajectory that seems to be the right direction. 
My first question of you is this. What does it mean in a practical sense to be the bride even of a good man? And from this day forward to bear his good name with him. What would that look like? What would your home life look like? Well then, what must it mean to be the bride of a great man and bear at his side as his bride his great name? What then must it mean to be the bride of a renowned and glorious man and from this day forward to bear with him his glorious name? I think this is a line of inquiry that is taking us somewhere. So what do you think it must mean in practical terms to be called into covenant love and fellowship with the King of kings and Lord of lords. In covenant with him who is the chiefest among 10,000, with him who's loved you with an everlasting love and gave himself up for you, sanctifying you, cleansing you by the washing of water with the word. What must that mean for you? Perhaps in thinking these questions through, we have our afternoon's work cut out for us. Perhaps we've scarcely begun to consider in practical terms of love, practical terms of courage, what it means to adore Jesus Christ as his bride, as his one and only and gratefully to bear at his wounded side that wonderful name at which very soon every knee will bow and every tongue confess him Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for that name which is above every name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that we might be taught here in your word to reverence it, to take it up, and not in vain. Grant that we would become by grace and the strength and power of your Holy Spirit the people you've called us to be, the bride of the glorious one, our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.